Welcome to the Horror Babble Originals podcast. The Man Who Saw the Light Over Winter Hill by Ian Gordon Seven. The Phone Calls The days that followed were like an unbroken dream. I didn't so much as open a window, kept the curtains closed, and spent most of each day peeking through them at the quiet street outside. The Ventor came and went, as did the constable's patrol car, but from neither did anyone emerge. I thought a lot about the driver of the silver car— the oddball in the dark suit. I couldn't shake the idea of the proverbial man in black, a watcher sent to observe my comings and goings. But why? Was there a connection between that otherworldly figure and the thing that had took on my likeness? I wanted to find out, but equally I wanted to forget. I chose to concentrate on the day-to-day, and it wasn't long before the cabin fever kicked in. Have you ever been in such a situation?' stuck indoors for days on end, completely alone, and not because you're sick or recovering from a broken leg, but because you haven't a clue what else to do. I've been called a workaholic on more than one occasion, and I'm sure I could have gone out on a job or two during that time, but with the idea of being watched day and night bearing down on me by both the police and that anonymous agent, I just couldn't face it. My meals consisted of tins of bland soup and beans on toast, supplemented by frequent mugs of tea and coffee. No wonder I was crawling the walls after twenty-four hours. Rosie called every day, expressing her desire to return as soon as possible. This I discouraged, insisting that I was absolutely fine, content to just stay indoors and keep myself to myself. Of course I was lying, but she didn't need to know that. It wasn't her fault I'd stumbled into this thing. A call from Inspector Thompson came through on the 29th, I think it was. She asked about my CCTV, whether or not recordings had been made the night the suspect had entered the house. Unfortunately, the VCR hadn't been running, which, looking back, had been a bit of an oversight on my part, especially after what Rosie and I had seen on the monitor on Christmas Day. They were no closer to locating the suspect, she said. No sightings of anybody matching the man's description have been reported, which, given the fact that the man they saw bore a striking resemblance to myself, made me even more determined to stay indoors and out of sight. My solitude continued, tweaking curtains and watching television. What a drag it was. And then the calls. For context, the main telephone is in the dining room, So, whenever a call comes through, it takes me a few seconds to get to it from the living room, and that's if I'm motivated to get to it at speed. The first call came in around late afternoon on New Year's Eve. I assumed it was my sister calling, or possibly my parents, so I didn't answer it in a hurry. But when, after a good minute or so, I finally picked up the handset, I found that it wasn't Rosie, nor was it my mum or dad. 
It was a silent caller, who apparently had nothing to say in response to my repeated hellos. I held the earpiece very close to my head and listened carefully. Not a sound. I hung up. I was about to call 1471 to determine the number of the caller when the phone rang again. I answered it. Hello? Hello? A strange voice echoed. Can I help you? I said, sensing that something was amiss. Can I help you? The voice repeated. There was, and I know this sounds odd, a mechanical edge to the voice, a kind of gurgling quality, as though the voice was being passed through an electronic phaser or something. Who is this? I went on. Who is this? Again, the caller simply repeated my words. I hung up again, and this time dialed 1471 immediately, in order to make a note of the caller's number, if, that is, the caller hadn't withheld it. But I was in luck. The caller hadn't withheld the number, and furthermore I recognised the number. It belonged to a phone box at the north end of Chapel Lane, a mere stone's throw from my door. As to how I recognised it, well, several months earlier, myself, Justin next door, and a couple of other neighbours, Cully and Anne at number ten, had called each other from the phone box in an effort to confirm a fault on the telephone line. It's funny how these things work out. If it hadn't been for that trouble in September, I wouldn't have known the caller's location, which might well have been for the best, considering how things turned out. But there's no point dwelling on that now. It is what it is. The moment I replaced the handset, the phone rang a third time. I answered it, an idea developing in my mind. Hello, I said again. And this time, instead of repeating my words, the voice, for of course it was the same caller, went off on a random prattle. Can I help you? Marvellous, marvellous. Can I help you? Marvellous. The caller said marvellous an awful lot. Just thinking about it now makes my raw skin crawl. What do you want? I asked, reaching for my coat and scarf. Who is this? Marvellous. Hello? Marvellous. Who is this? I managed to slip my boots on, then asked, Why do you keep calling me? What do you want? Marvellous. Marvellous. Dressed for the cold evening ahead, I left the handset hanging by its cord, the voice babbling away, and went for the back door. I crept through the garden and stepped into the shadowy ginnel that runs parallel with the row. I followed the ginnel to the north and emerged at the top of Chapel Lane, moving covertly in the direction of the phone box that would hopefully still contain my prank caller. Standing just out of sight, peering from the relative shelter of an old tree, I laid my eyes on the red kiosk. What I saw there shocked me for it wasn't just the fact that I was looking at my exact double, speaking into the handset, a blank look on his face, but also the fact that the man was wearing precisely the same clothes I was wearing, from the plain tan scarf and black duffel coat to the stonewashed jeans and mahogany hiking boots. I stood there for a few seconds, shaking my head in astonishment. This was him, the escaped suspect, the thing that had taken shape in my bedroom just a few days ago, and now he was calling me, over and over again, in an effort to achieve what exactly? To replicate my voice? 
Was his purpose to take over my life? Replace me? Did he have help? Someone had to have provided him with my telephone number. I'm ex-directory. Or had he absorbed that information when he looked into my being on Boxing Day? Other questions raced through my mind, but I couldn't consider them. Because just then, the man who was me hung up the phone and exited the kiosk, moving off to the north. Even his walk resembled mine. This was my chance, I thought. My chance to get some answers. I followed him. It was easy enough to maintain a safe distance, as a recent dusting of snow recorded his steps. And that was strange enough in itself, the way my footprints just slipped into his effortlessly. We trod on in the twilight, climbing ever higher towards Winter Hill. The clouds above were tinged with a pinkish hue, filled with the promise of further snowfall. I was a considerable distance behind now. The idea of alerting him to my presence was something I just couldn't handle. And not once did I see another soul, nor did additional footprints in the snow betray the presence of a dog-walker, or the meandering tread of a New Year's Eve celebrant. My double never looked back, seemed incapable of any action other than that of forward progression. He had somewhere to be, I was sure of it, and I was determined to find out where that was. My sense of self-preservation had taken a back seat for the time being. <laughs> Why was that? I hadn't been a risk-taker before. I'd always been happy to play the game and just get by. But the strangeness of it all, that had to be the straw that broke the camel's back. I saw the two lads on the horizon, and knew that we were heading back to where it had all started. Perhaps to that curious patch of flattened moor grass Rosie and I had discovered on Boxing Day. Up the old service road we went, up onto the chilly flats of the moor proper, then veered west towards Crooked Edge Hill. The icy winds blowing from the north were biting, coupled now with flurries of snow. The weather had changed in an instant, punishing me for my boldness. Visibility had been reduced dramatically, but I pushed on like a munson braving the Antarctic wastes. I'd lost sight of my doppelganger in all this, and his footprints were much more difficult to spot, quickly consumed by the blizzard. It was as though the elements had an agenda of their own, to prevent me from reaching my goal. Looking back, I should have read the signs. Should have turned around. But I didn't, and I paid the price for my ignorance. Here, my recollections become a little muddled. I remember cresting Crooked Edge Hill, and saw just ahead of me the two lads, a pair of snow-topped cairns. There was a figure between them, obscured by billowing clouds. I went forward, shielding my eyes from the onslaught of flakes, and was about to take cover behind the smaller of the cairns, when once again, without warning, a great flash of light filled my eyes, right above my head this time, and... darkness. Darkness. 